Traditionally speaking, in the field of psychology, thinking too much about the future has been associated with anxiety or a preoccupation or an anticipation. Today, we're going to talk about how thinking about the future could actually be positive for your mental health, and we're going to learn about what futurism is and who are these futurists and how are they integrating with many different types of industries and how can futurist thinking integrate with psychology and philosophy. I believe you're going to love today's show. I'm interviewing Sylvia Galusser, a global futurist and founder and CEO of Silicon Humanism. A little bit about Sylvia. Sylvia conducts foresight research on the future of health, well-aging, and social interaction, evolutions in retail and mobility, the future of work, lifelong learning, artificial general intelligence, the future of our oceans and sustainability, as well as the future of the mind and transhumanism. Sylvia has been advising 500-plus tech companies for the past 15 years, starting as an IT consultant at Accenture, launching the Impact USA Accelerated with Business France, and leading funding access programs at the French Tech Hub. She has been leading many European tech companies to global success as a founding partner at Big Bang Factory. Sylvia graduated from HEC Paris in France, She arrived in San Francisco in 2005, where she has developed a special interest in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. She teaches go-to-market strategy, competitive analyses, future studies, and entrepreneurship in business schools for the corporate world and as a mentor in various startup accelerators. She is a published author of Future Fiction with Fast Future Publishing and a board member at the Gray Swan Guild. Throw on your future thinking cap and stay tuned for this excellent interview on the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Welcoming to the podcast, Sylvia Galusser. Sylvia, I'm so excited as you're the first futurist that we've had on the Intentional Clinician Podcast, and I'm so excited to dive in to how future thinking may influence our psychology and philosophy. Uh, both now and in the future. So thank you for coming to the show. Thank you, Paul. I'm so glad to be here. We've had quite a dialogue going on since we met on LinkedIn. And as I know you are running Silicon Humanism and work as a consultant, uh, we actually collaborated a little bit on some ideas for the Pandemic Home Hotline, which I posted a blog about recently. And uh, you have a lot of really interesting projects going on. Um, so yeah, is there anything you want to tell us before we get started with asking about what is a futurist? Sure. I'm so glad you start by mentioning that project because I think that was a beautiful collaboration and a good example on how futurist and a mental health practitioner can, can work together on projects. So I really hope we can link that to the audience so that they can see exactly what we've been producing together. Yes, yeah, so we definitely can uh, put that in the notes as well as all of your links and information will be available uh, for people to get involved, uh, either with Silicon Humanist or you as a consultant, or I know that you're involved with the Gray Swan Guild, and we'll definitely do that. Uh, I'm excited for people to hear about our idea for collaboration. So I'm very excited for people to dive in and hear all of the projects you're involved in. One of the things that struck me 
about learning about futurism and a futurist and what they do was actually all of the things I didn't know. And uh, so actually, in our discussion for this podcast, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what a futurist mindset is not. Oh, I love that we start with that question. Usually we start with what is a futurist? And, and I have a lot to say about this, but I think it's really interesting to start with what it is not. Um, because there's so much defiance uh, towards future thinking, foresight, thinking the future. And I I am the first to, to witness it every day. Um, as a foresight practitioner, I face skepticism and questioning from customers, from prospects, and, and even from my entourage. So that's a good question. Why do people uh, scare the future? First, I'd say it's because it, it, we have kind of a natural reaction towards the future. Imagining the future provokes anxiety, and our brain is wired so that we are mostly future adverse. Our primary reactions are towards short-term survival, and being able to think about the future is actually a consequence of civilization, not a natural element. Then there's also a sort of um, anthropological taboo. For example, you can think of the old Yiddish adage, Man plans, God laughs. And it perfectly illustrates that life is unpredictable. And however hard we try to plan ahead, unexpected changes will inevitably occur. So we commonly assume that we should not try to know too much about our future destiny, or maybe that we will be cursed if we attempt to do so. Then you can think, of course, of popular fiction. So many, so many books and uh, movies, series, etc. Most of the time, when humans engage in time travel, they end up messing with the past and changing the future. And then it's all about fixing human errors to put the timeline back on track. And you can think Terminator, Back to the Future, Dragon Ball, etc. So traveling in the future is like provoking the gods. If you go on the philosophical side, you can think of ancient wisdom and meditation masters. Um, they promote a focus on the present moment. Don't try to take control over your emotions, but let them go through you, let them pass by. Get rid of trying to change the past or to control the future. And, and of course, there are plenty of benefits with that type of attitude. Um, but also being able to make mistakes and learning from, from not knowing the future is a great, great skill. Being able to be astonished and, and being astonished is actually one of the foundation of Aristotle and Socrates philosophy. So being astonished to what happens every single day uh, is, is very, very useful to be able to enjoy our life. And if we know too much about the future, we feel that we will be paralyzed. So living the present moment is really about being empowered by the fact that we, we that things are not written yet, that what we can actually write them ourselves. And then maybe another critics um, about futurism, it often sounds like it's an occult science or an esoteric practice, you know, uh, similar to palm reading or fortune telling. 
which it is absolutely not. And I hope I, I can convince you about that. Um, I think it's quite original to start a podcast on futurism with the trial of futurism. But I surely hope uh, before the end of the, of the podcast, I will convince you of the benefits also of future thinking. Well, I'm excited to hear about these benefits, and I definitely think we should address some of the critiques because a lot of people haven't heard of futurism or future thinking. And as you said, we can't actually know the future. We don't know the future as humans. And if we did know the future, we'd be paralyzed because we would know what's going to happen in our lives. There's been a lot of movies and books written about this sort of thing. I actually, um, from a psychology point of view, I, I love that understanding that you said thinking about the future is a consequence of civilization, not a natural element. Um, because when humans lived in caves or were nomadic and uh, thousands of years ago before uh, modern agriculture allowed them to settle in regions um, if they wanted to, they had to continually think of their next meal, safety, weather, and sort of just survival. And uh, once you have established a civilization with predictable agriculture, um, which developed over the past thousand, couple thousand years, but now in the modern uh, first world nations, we don't even need predictable agriculture because we're importing fruits and vegetables and meats uh, depending on the weather conditions and the market conditions and the demand and supply chains of modern economics. And so now if we get rid of the, the fear about shelter for some people and the fear about food scarcity and depending on the time of year, the fear of weather changing that could damage your livelihood, then people uh, have a lot of time to think about what do they want to do in the future? Um, what will the future be like? Instead of having to constantly think about survival in the, uh, in the moment. And then uh, thus with the rise of, of civilization, I don't know if this had to do with the rise of modern medicine, but we found the, the rise of neuroticism. And that was what it was called in the 1800s, uh, which was, you know, a lot of neuroticism was depression or fear-based before they came up with the modern definitions of anxiety. Um, but, and, and a lot of practitioners say, if you focus on the future, you're going to find you have more anxious symptoms. And if you focus on the past, you're going to be more depressed because we don't have control over either. And thus, uh, ancient wisdom and meditation masters, funny enough, is having a major comeback with the mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction movement and yoga uh, becoming a very large practice here in the West. Um, we've learned to come back uh, to the moment. And sometimes when people are so anxious and caught in an anxious spiral, and if they can learn to meditate or learn to do yoga or something like that, all of a sudden they have this giant relief. Uh, and so I see that... Um, that's sort of a tie to psychology and you've talked about philosophy as well, but the interesting thing about a futurist from what I understand, and we're going to address the critics here is that the futurist actually spends a lot of time thinking about possible futures and what that might be. And the futurist may even consult with different companies about preparing for these things. Is that true? 
Yeah, it's perfect, perfectly true. And I, I really like the fact that you go back to agriculture and the creation of the first complex systems uh, because th there's a parallel between the way our human species evolved and Avery has written a lot about this in Sapiens um, and, and the way we also went up the hierarchy of needs by Maslow. Um, and I think in the times where the, the conjecture is difficult, where the context is more a crisis context, we need to address the bottom of the pyramid. And we are more in survival mode, probably addressing our primary brain also. Um, and, and that's what happens for some people during uh, the recent pandemic. It's all about uh, physiological needs, about safety, having a shelter, and then when you feel you are addressing these topics, then you can go up the pyramid and think about socializing again. And then when you go up and up the pyramid, you can think of personal development and hopefully even go until um, self-actualization or, or, or creating a better society. And I think there's a parallel between this pyramid and how uh, the human species evolved over time. Um, and thinking about the future can actually happen at each of these steps um, because you will be thinking about the future to build and to plan in case of, of losing a home, losing, um, losing crops, uh, in, if you were talking about agriculture, for example. So there's planning involved at all of these steps. And that's really where why I talked about civilization because as soon as we started this planning, that's where uh, we started building civilization. And that's where we kind of distinguished ourselves from just another animal species. But then to come to come back to the to the critics, and that was your other question. Um, I think there are different ways to address uh, the critics we can make to future thinking. First, there's an opportunity actually to turn the anxiety provoking characteristic into a strength. Um, by working on stretching our time horizon. And each of us can do that. Um, and then we, we can actually make our minds more future friendly. There's something we, each of us can do. And of course, it's easier to do when you don't have the pressure of the current moment of the survival of, of, of surviving every day. Um, if we do that, we can go beyond our natural reactions. We can make them more acceptable for us. And we have plenty of small brain fitness exercise to help us with. Um, it's kind of, we have the structural capacity to embrace the future, but we just need to nurture it because we have developed uh, that brain, like this, the second and third brain, not just the primary brain to think about the future. Uh, but now we need to nurture it to be able to, to develop that skill of thinking the future. The second thing is we refer to the discipline as future thinking with an S for future. Uh, why is this plural? Well, it means we don't predict what will happen for sure. We don't predict one future. We are not technically reading the future. What we try to achieve, however, is to establish plausible scenarios in order to envision how we could live in those future scenarios and how we could act to these opportunities in those possible futures. And then from there, we would retro plan. What actions can we actually take today to prepare for those potential futures? So that's about the planning. 
Then uh, we will discuss what type of self-help we can build around Shetus thinking, but we can already notice how important the sense of agency is in Shetus thinking. And, and I will probably talk about it again and again, but agency is really at the core of Shetus thinking. It's not about reading one future and not feeling empowered. It's really the opposite. Developing a futurist mindset is a practice towards developing our own ability to take action and to build action plans to gain back that sense of agency over our own life, and, but also our collective uh, destiny. And ultimately, uh, future thinking is also about investigating different perspectives. We love all this exercise of changing, switching perspective. It's about flexibility and empathy towards uh, different personas that could live in these futures. Um, and because it opens up perspectives, it will help us connect better with each other. So there are really benefits uh, into future thinking. And in, in addition, um, that's another very important notion at the core of, of the discipline, urgent optimism. By envisioning possible futures, and sometimes it means scenarios of collapse, we can react today, even before the worst uh, scenarios actually occur. And in that sense, we love to be wrong. And I really insist on that. We love to be wrong about the future. We love to be wrong in our predictions. Um, so future thinking is not about being right about the future. It's about being prepared and about making our preferred future actually happen. So that's why I think it's an optimistic and very hopeful approach to life. And to sustain that approach, there's a whole methodology. So it's not an esoteric uh, science. It's really a, a, a methodology-based science. And, and we think, for example, um, of tools. We use future wheels. We use backcasting. We challenge this tool. We share them with the community. We exchange with other practitioners, and we want to make them better. So the future is community is very lively and, and very active. And I think there's a lot actually to learn from this in terms of self-help self -help and psychology. That is great. I'm very excited about this scenario because while you address the critics, uh, you were also explaining how some of a bit about futurism's philosophies. And I think it's interesting to talk about this sense of agency um, I do think that to, yeah, to, to really think about the future, we do need a sense of agency. And I know that a lot of people around the world felt that they did not have agency um, during the pandemic and also the election uh, in the United States, uh, the presidential election. People felt this sense of um, helplessness and hopelessness. And we're just trying to get through the day. I think people were making jokes on comedy shows, you know, of course, via video and social media and whatnot, just sort of saying like, well, I'm looking forward to my next uh, day cooking soup or something. You know, they were just kind of making these jokes because they didn't feel like they had any control. So what are we going to control? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook something. Um, and so to get into futurist thinking, to be able to predict these things, or, or not predict, but to be able to sort of philosophize about what may occur, we've we have to have that sense of agency that we can do something. Um, this concept of urgent optimism, I like that because it seems like a very preventative science. If you're looking at the trends and looking at, um, for instance, the trends in, let's say, the infrastructure of the bridges in the United States, if you look at those trends right now in recent articles that I've been reading, 
you'll see that somewhere upwards of 60% of the bridges in the United States that are over waterways or valleys don't meet code of that state or county. So if I was a futurist thinking about this, my optimism would be, hmm, maybe we should invest as a United States culture collectively into uh, fixing the bridges before they collapse. But if I was thinking in a negative way, I'd think, well, these bridges are just all going to collapse because of time. But you are saying that we use this to imagine these worst case scenarios or collapse so that we can then prevent them to be wrong about them and sort of alert different interested parties to opportunities. So I found that interesting. Um, and again, it's not about being right or, um, you know, predicting the future. It's just more likely predicting scenarios in the future. And apparently you were talking about having lots of different tools and collaboration and exercises that you do um, when you are working on your futurist uh, papers. Yeah, right. Uh, thank you for asking about this because I, I'm also a very methodological person and, and I love also to introduce the tool we use. Uh, and there are a few I think uh, I can mention so that it makes it probably uh, more concrete in, in our listeners' uh, minds how we actually do foresight. Um, so let me introduce you for, to a first tool called Future Back. And it's not back to the future, it's really something different. Um, instead of starting from where we are now and, and plan step by step where to go, which is the usual way of building an action plan in business, for example, what we will do is we will first imagine realistic future scenarios. And then within those future scenarios, we will place a target of where we want to be in these futures. And it can be 10 years from now, for example. Um, and then in these future scenarios, by identifying these targets, we, we will define areas of future opportunities. When we have done that first step, we will then backcast from here, like retro plan. We will use logical chains to come back to the present moment until we reach exactly where we stand today. So this reverse engineering process helps connect a vision of a preferred future and future opportunities to the present time and our current position. To give you an example, uh, let's think of a company willing to launch a new product. Instead of basing the product specifications on today's market's needs, uh, the company can first imagine which purpose that future product will serve in some future scenarios. And then uh, by this backcasting thing, uh, they can act towards designing that future pro product by retro planning. And we can do the exact same thing with our own self. It can really help as a self-help tool, imagining uh, what role we would like to play in a different future, not just comparing ourselves to people around us today and feeling like, oh, it's good to have role model. I don't say we shouldn't do that, but that's another tool. It's like, instead of just focusing on what we don't have today, let's think of maybe a better future we would like to create and what role we could play in that uh, future. That's wonderful. I wanted to comment. It sounds like right now you're actually getting into a way that futurism could uh, help the field of psychology and self-help instead of just thinking about the anxiety or anticipation or preoccupation of what may happen, um, you're thinking about broadening a perspective. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Yes, and probably there's a, a detachment at some point. It's first you think about the future scenario, and then you place yourself in that future scenario. So it's a two-step thing. And I think it's different from thinking um, what you are today and what you want to become. Because really, you detach first, you think about a plausible future, and then you, you place yourself within that uh, plausible future, and then you backcast. That's about the methodology. I like that. I think that that could help people a lot to think about a future scenario or plan that they're in and if they can really imagine that. And then the hard work, I think, is to go is when you're going backwards, you're reverse engineering. Um, But actually, that can give people practical steps that are more realistic, where sometimes young people will come into a counseling office and they'll have all these ideas about what they want to do in the future. And then they attempt, you know, to move on what they think is the first step toward that goal. And if they don't do it right or something goes wrong, they seem to slip into depression or they may uh, be afraid to even try further. And so I think that by the detachment and, and seeing it as an exercise and really breaking it down using futurist thinking, that could be a way to tie um, psychology into the futurist thinking model. Right. I, I can give you a, another example. I, I have a daughter who wants to become a teacher and, and she, she's thinking of how teaching uh, works today, what he's learning about, the tool we have today. And, but I don't want her to be disappointed, like she's starting to think she will be that kind of teacher. So what I try to do with her, I tell her, but you think we're going to teach the same way tomorrow. What will be a good experience of teaching tomorrow? First, we detach from her but we, we think about the future of learning and, and what we could bring to the world of learning. What could be uh, remote learning? What could be immersive learning? What could be lifelong learning, for example? And then when we get that idea of how it's going to look like, then I'm asking her, so in that future, what, what would you like to do? Would you like to build those tools uh, to work in the future? Would you like to animate a classroom, but maybe it won't look like a classroom? So it's more about finding areas of opportunities and then thinking about how she could build herself today for becoming that person tomorrow. Yeah, I like that. I think also it takes out some of the personal fears of well, I'm not in the future yet. I don't know how, like, I'm not good enough to do that sort of thing in the future. But if you're thinking about this is maybe what might happen in the future, and these are some skills that you could learn today that would prepare you for that, that gives me more agency to think about um, how I could actually pragmatically do something in the present. Exactly. And and it changes scale. It's not just about being in the continuity of what it is being a teacher today, if we take that example again. But it's more about like thinking about how can we recreate the function of a teacher tomorrow? So it's an innovative approach also. Like, can you contribute? How can you contribute to something bigger than just accomplishing your wish? It's really about uh, how can you contribute to building that future? <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it sounds like the futurists have, we'll, we'll probably get into this later, but they, they have a philosophy, it sounds like, of, of attempting to build a collectivist, uh, or not maybe a collectivist, but a sort of a util- utilitarian ideas to help um, every, uh, whatever, whoever they're working for, that company or the greater planet. Right, exactly. 
I can, I can share with you another tool if you want. Um, when we use a lot, and it's usually at the beginning of the process, uh, is called signal scanning. Signals are kind of the raw material of futurist. We constantly scan and look for signals uh, from the future in our current environments. So what are these signals from the future? It's not the future talking to us, but it's close to that. Um, they, sometimes they are called weak signals or signals of change. It, it's very similar. So they can be uh, a scientific breakthrough, uh, a new discovery, a change of policy. It can be a local event. It can be a bigger event. It can be a software, an application, a new mobile phone application, uh, a new product, uh, etc. It can also be a behavior that you notice in your environment. Um, are the people more civil, less civil on the roads, in the streets, etc. So we collect all uh, that raw material, and and that's part of. The everyday job. We always start by um, watching the news, watching uh, social media, listening to voices from the field and so on. The second step uh, when you get this signal is to analyze them. What you try to understand is uh, what is the driver behind this? What is the motivation? What is the future force behind the signal? And from there, that's how we will build the scenarios. We combine signals, we extrapolate, we imagine what the world would look like if uh, the signals were to be amplified, generalized, or become uh, commonplace. This exercise of scanning is extremely fruitful, not only when you want to do a good job as a futurist, but also because I invite you to take a closer look at your environment, at what lies ahead. You start to be more acute, and it gives you that sense of agency we were mentioning. It gives you some control over what happens, as if you were a first-row spectator of the future show. And once again, you were talking about collectivity. It also helps you connect with other people. If you start discussing the signals, oh, I noticed that today, oh, I've read about this, and, and you start conversation. and and asking yourself collectively, is this a signal or is it just noise? And it helps you empathize by trying to understand what drivers uh, lie behind some behaviors that might seem uh, disturbing at first. And, and you were talking about the election. We've seen a lot of behaviors. Um, people have been, have been um, disturbed by, by some behaviors. And, and I mean, by talking about it, by trying to understand what they mean, that's the first step towards um, each other. So once again, this optimism and this uh, collective thinking. I like that also because I was thinking from a psychology perspective, um, you know, if you just signal scan your environment and your workplace or your friendship group and you don't talk to anybody else about it, it can lead to a great deal of anxiety. And obviously these are futurist tools to examine the entire culture. But I think as a, you know, a person who's in business or a person who's in, in school trying to figure out what they're wanting to do, um, using signal scanning uh, skill and then talking to people about it and talking and talking and, and analyzing with others can really help you kind of think about, you know, what is the future? What, what, what do I want to pursue? What is, what is something versus getting sort of fear signals mixed in there and kind of retreating? So I, I actually talked to some young people the other day in the early 20s that were um, 
wanting to, they were figuring out their majors and I just happened to speak to them, uh, both of them. And they were talking about, well, what do you think about this internship versus this internship? And I thought it was a really good idea because they were sort of scanning, like, what, what is my future PhD program going to want? Are they going to want me to have this experience or that experience? And they were getting a, a degree in my, in my field. And so I just told them my, my perspective, but I couldn't tell them what to do about the internships, but I could say, it seems like if you're pursuing a PhD in this area, the experience, this experience would probably be more valued than just having this other one, because one of the experiences was much more holistic and brought in their other major. One of their other majors besides psychology was environmental science and uh, sustainability. And one of the internships involved psychology and sustainability, while the other internship only involved psychology, but it had a prestigious name attached to it. And so I said, I can't tell you what to do, but honestly, if you're trying to combine psychology with sustainability and environmentalism, you got to, I would possibly go for the one that has both, even though it doesn't have that uh, name attached to it, because then you could actually make a name for yourself in the field, combining those two things, which in my experience of signal scanning uh, myself, I've, I've rarely seen those two things come together. There's now a few journals, I think, talking about eco-psychology and a few books about eco-psychology, but there's not much out there right now. So I thought that was an interesting uh, exercise that uh, this young person was asking me about, and I sort of gave them my signal scan off the top of my head, although we didn't actually do the futurist method of spending time and putting it all in charts and <laughs> analyzing it together. But um, I was thinking of one way that could be used for psychology. Yeah, I love the parallel you're, you're drawing. And I think unconsciously that that's what you've been doing, like knowing that sustainability um, will play a bigger role in the future and that having that double uh, competency uh, is already you uh, having gathered signals and having understood what is that future force uh, behind the signals. And maybe here um, I can think of one critic around this signal clinic, um, this, sorry, this signal scanning, uh, and and I need maybe to to make a compliment on, on that because when you scan for signal, it's like you are seeing the trends before they happen. Usually, you are at an inflection point in the curve. The curve is still slow, but it's starting to grow when you get the signal early. And I'm thinking about the conversation maybe you have with some patients. And as a practitioner, you, you, you talk to people and you start seeing maybe a pattern, but it's not there. Uh, there are not enough data now uh, to really see a pattern. But you, as a human being, you can see the patterns sometimes earlier than it will be in the data. So that's why signal scanning can be a first step to forecasting. You don't even have um, the addition of all data. If you talk to other practitioners, maybe you will see, oh, there's really something happening. Maybe then we should gather that data around this, like how many um, young um Maybe young people are thinking about their future. Oh, that's a recurring uh, question we have, and we didn't have it that much before. Then you start uh, collecting that data and comparing to maybe uh, what it was, if you had data before, or what it's going to be in a few months, and you can see the evolution. Maybe more and more um, students or young people are really uh, thinking about going towards sustainability and towards something useful and not just a prestigious uh, university. Uh, so by first uh, having the conversation and noticing 
there's a change in the conversations you have maybe with your patients. It starts to be uh, an aggregation of, of thoughts, like more and more people having uh, the same kind of worries. That's also where you are doing this signal scanning. And you can notice the change even before it's in the data. And I think it really correlates with what we were talking about uh, previously, about being future ready, about arriving early in the future. Because if you find the signal even before uh, it's really seen in the data, in, in aggregated data, uh, then you can arrive early uh, and take opportunity in these futures. Well, that's great. I think there seems to be quite a lot of parallels with the work that the futurists are doing and also the field of psychology. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about some of the tools, uh, such as um, the scenarios that you build after you've done an actual signal scanning exercise. Exactly. So th that's where we structure um, this raw data. It's where we actually build <laughs> the product if we try to compare with, with what an industry is doing. Um, so exactly. So we build scenarios. That's a central point, actually, regarding futures thinking. And once again, futures in plural. We just we don't build just one scenario. We try to build different scenarios. And there are different methods uh, for, for it. Once again, we don't aim at predicting what will happen in the future. We get to imagine and give to visualize. And visualization is important. That's maybe the step after this. So to give to visualize possible scenarios. Some we want to happen and some we don't want to happen. There's an approach we love to use um, about four future scenarios. Growth, a scenario of growth, a scenario of collapse, a scenario of constraint, and a scenario of transform. And from there, uh, each of us get to decide if they want to contribute to build a transform future or to act against a collapse future. Um, or how to be well positioned in a growth scenario, for example, how to enable better life in a constraint scenario, etc. So from there, from the scenario building approach, we can then take a pledge to act for a better future and start acting, start lobbying, start building the product we want to exist. The violence prevention hotline we feel will be needed in a violence-filled future, for example. So all of us, we do already do future thinking without even realizing it. Some days we are optimistic and maybe the future we envision is more of a growth or transform scenario. And some days we feel like everything is collapsing and we need to prepare for that future. So I think even in our brain as individuals, and I'm not talking about futures, just as individuals, we probably kind of loop around that type of scenarios. And doing that work of futures by trying to structure it, to describe it, it's kind of also a cathartic um, cathartic, I, I don't know how to say cathartic. So yes. Um, yeah, it's really like the catharsis as Aristotle was describing it. Because you go through these scenarios and sometimes the worst, it's also a way to be prepared psychologi psychologically if ever they happen. Um, so it's actually what helps us to cope in situations of despair. What will bring us to act instead of remaining passive in front of what scares us? the possibility to contribute to a better future will be what drives us. So this notion of hope, again, is at the core of future thinking. Yeah, I, I really am, 
enjoying the idea. It seems like even, I don't know if there's a futurist creed or something, but that the idea of hope being at the core of it, because you've seen, you know, from, I'm assuming futurists also study history to understand and come up with these scenarios of growth, collapse, constraint, and transform. And I mean, a, a joke I've been hearing in comedy a lot is uh, the comparisons between the Roman Empire and, our, and the current United States and all of the kind of poking fun at that, which is sort of a collapse, poking fun at a collapse scenario. Um, I don't like to be that pessimistic. I like to think about uh, a transform scenario. I think the uh, when I was being brought up in school in the United States, everything was about a growth scenario. Everyone's preaching growth, 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 growth. But I think uh, what we've seen with... Uh, the financial issues, um, but in the 2008 and beyond, uh, the climate issues that are ongoing, uh, the social change issues that are arising, and uh, the new, uh, what I call post-truth sort of uh, era we're in right now, are, are leading definitely doesn't seem like there's a one way of growing. <laughs> it definitely seems that uh, collapse or constraint are on the horizon. But I'm hoping that this leads to transform, transformation. So in psychology, a lot of times there are notions, and these are philosophies, these aren't exact truths or facts, but we do see this sort of again and again, that people sometimes have to learn themselves through difficult mistakes or challenges or failures and that would look like a collapse or a constraint before they can transform and before they can grow again. Um, and often sometimes uh, people have what they call a breakdown of depression or anxiety, or they would really call it a major depressive episode where they go so deep and so dark within themselves that they consider everything a failure or a collapse, for, for instance, to use that word, um, that nothing will ever change. Uh, but by predicting that nothing will ever change, it makes people depressed. And then eventually they, they seem to hit some sort of usually breaking point and hopefully get treatment at that point. And, and when people do or, or whether or not they do or not, um, there's often a then opposite movement in the direction of, wait a minute, if this is as bad as it gets and I can survive this, perhaps I can change and transform my life into something else. Um, We've also seen throughout the pandemic, a lot of people felt constrained by the um, government lockdowns and the fear of transmitting the virus to a loved one. And so we saw people immediately going online <laughs> to these video meetings. And in fact, I've never been on so many video meetings in my life uh, than over the last year. And not only doing that, but coming up with all sorts of interesting ways to share information and making more content and connecting to more people. And recently I even have some musician friends who uh, figured out some way to plug their instruments into a video conferencing so they could hear each other playing in real time and play together. And so people right there, that was a transformation coming out of constraint. Um, and, uh, People came up with uh, people started using grocery delivery programs and um, all sorts of different and things were invented. So the human spirit, you know, I think a lot of people believe in in hope and m moving forward. Uh, but I do think um, there is a, a, a spirit of fear that does hold humans back. Um, 
we have this fantasy, I think, of being a child and how things were simpler in the past. And oftentimes, I think there's an aversion to changing things or trying to make things better in the future because we're we're paranoid of what that might involve um, because of our preoccupation with the past and how we believe things will be more simple in the past. And what I found with that is I, I, my theory is that the past, it being simple was just that you were younger and you actually didn't have abstract gray thinking skills. And so things seemed simpler. They seemed black and white. And there's a movement at the same time of a movement of people hopeful and trying to invent new things for the future, for the better of all people uh, and the planet. There's also a, a, a completely contrary movement of don't change anything um, we think that you are up to no good if you're trying to change uh, the future and, and grow towards something. We think that everything's fine the way it is, and if you change it, we feel threatened. And so <laughs> I think that's that's human nature to kind of have these opposites. Uh, but I like the futurist thinking is that if we could get everybody to learn some of these skills about building these scenarios, well, what do you actually want a scenario to be like? I actually think a lot of people's scenarios <laughs> would be somewhat uh, in the same realm, it's just that the the idea of the uh, the way to get there and the um, the the words or the 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 philosophy surrounding it might be a, a little bit different. So that was just me kind of talking about um, how I see some psychological concepts comparing to these scenarios. Um, this isn't totally clinical; just my opinion. <laughs> may, may I add a little something on this? I, I think it, it, it's so interesting to, to draw the parallel between uh, the practice of psychology and indeed uh, futurism. And I, I should mention um, another tool we use because implicitly you, you mentioned it. It's um, a tool we use, like let's take a look five days in the future, uh, in the past, uh, and then five days in the future. Then maybe one year in the past, one year in the future. Uh, five years in the past, five years in the future, 10 years in the past. And, and you can go as far as you want, like 500 years, uh, 1,000 years, etc. And And indeed, the practice of history is fundamental for futurism. It's not like we are in the present and we just look in one direction. There's only an effect of symmetry to understand also the bigger trends. So I think uh, we can use that also, as you were saying, on the personal level by thinking, what I was as a kid and what was important to me, and how can I symmetrize in the future and try to, to continue that trend. I think also we have kind of a stronger connection to our past than to our future um, because of certain brain disposition. We can talk about them a little later, but there's this kind of, of disconnect. We are much more connected to what we were in the past and to try to, to to get out of the trauma we went because they have they have been traumatizing, but they also made us. That's what we are. Whereas we are much more estranged from our future selves. So we think there's a symmetry, but there's also a bigger symmetry because our identity from the past to the present is kind of a fluid thing. It, it's changed, but it's in the continuity. Whereas where we think about our future self, um, there's kind of a disconnect. And, and that's once again, because of our brain structure. And another, another thing around the tool I wanted to mention as you we were talking about uh, that guitar uh, playing and so on. If we think about the, the four scenarios, sometimes they happen um, or there are signals that they will happen 
in the same field. Let me take, for example, uh, the field of leisure and entertainment. You can think there is some things growing, some things are constraining right now, some things are collapsing, and some things are transforming. And this is all within the same field. Um, let's do ex the exercise, for example, uh, in terms of entertainment. What has been collapsing? We can think of museum closing. We can think of all the art scene closing, uh, less movies have been able uh, to be filmed and so on. So that would be, for example, the collapse. Like, is it the end of, of movie theaters? I've read that a lot, for example. Then you can think of uh, something more about constraint. Okay, uh, we were not able to do uh, as many um, in-person movie filming, for example. Uh, so the shooting didn't happen, but at the same time, uh, films have been maybe made more uh, on digital media. I can think of Mandalorian, which has been made almost just on a screen, uh, and it's not like in a, in a real setting, things think like that. So it's more about constraint. Um, then you can think about things that have been growing. I think people got empowered by being part of creating cultures themselves. Everybody uh, kind of learned new skills and, and many people try to, I don't know, um, attend the lessons online, for example, and get new skills, be able to, to contribute to a concert, being able to contribute to a collective cultural events. So that's more about like the growing thing. It, and then it's really about transforming things maybe we used to do uh, in person. Now we will do them more online or maybe things we used to do uh, with thousands of people, like attending concerts with thousands of people. Maybe tomorrow it will be uh, um, uh, smaller events. People will want to meet with just a few friends. And I can think of applications that are rising right now, such as Clubhouse. I don't know if you've seen that, but... People like that type of very uh, intimate conversation uh, formats and the rise of audio, for example. Uh, we used to be all about video and I think it's quite interesting that uh, podcasts have never been that popular during um, the pandemic and now it's coming to that type of new social media around audio. So there's something transforming in the way we, we consume uh, entertainment. So what I mean here is that in one single field, you can see uh, some elements that are growing, uh, that are collapsing, that are transforming, etc. And if we now replicate that in the field of the personal, um, of an individual, this type of tool can help you also uh, kind of draw a panorama of your own life and see, okay, in my life, what are the, the areas that are growing now? What are the areas uh, that I feel are collapsing? What don't I do anymore? And if I if I stop doing it, uh, if I if I don't know if I drink alcohol, uh, if I smoke more, this is kind of a collapse for me. So I don't want to go in that direction. But by doing this, you can also see that not everything is negative. You have also positive things happening uh, in terms of direction, in terms of driver of future force in your life. And by drawing that parallel, maybe that can be I don't know a tool you can use with patient, like just. Try to consider your current environment in your life and try to tell me what is growing, what is collapsing, what is constrained and what is transformed. Just thinking. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And just um, before we get to the philosophy section, I wanted to kind of also just mention that. Um, so when a lot of times you work with people that are going through a difficult time uh, or, or maybe they're depressed or anxious, uh, and, and sometimes it, it seems like 
their mind is so preoccupied or ruminating around a certain point that they are not unable to see a larger perspective. And so by maybe doing an exercise like this, they might be able to see that while these things are happening that they don't like, these other things or opportunities are there that might actually be the opposite of what they're going through. Um, and how do we then help them shift their mindset? So I like that exercise. So far, this has been entertaining for me to see uh, some of the futurist tools and how um, those can align with psychology. Uh, I was wondering now, we talked a lot about the philosophy and I, th I think this is quite a quite a lot to lay out here, but I think I think we should go for it. Uh, this is philosophy is a thing I love to learn, although I've not uh, formally have a degree in it at all. But I would love to know how about future thinking and how uh, it's associated with philosophy. Very good point. Well, thanks for asking. Um, it's actually not so popular uh, to have a philosophical um, approach to the future. And, and I tried to search it like, who is the top uh, philosopher of the future? And if you have philosophers thinking about time, about history, about the role of history, and you think of Hegel, for example, uh, you don't have like one specific philosopher of the future. So just to make sure when, when I talk about philosophy of the future, I really mean philosophy applied to the topic of the future, not the duration of philosophy in the future. Yes. Uh, because that, that's quite popular, like philosophy right now, I think there's a good future for philosophy. It's getting quite popular uh, in classes, in corporate environments, on clubhouse once again, uh, etc. But the future as a core topic for philosophers, that's a less defined area. It, it's usually uh, addressed as a subtopic of other uh, topics of a larger scope. If we were to think about one uh, philosopher that we can name probably the, the philosopher of the future, I, I would probably name uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche uh, given his emphasis on future philosophers, because he talked actually about that concept of future philosophers, who would be future thinkers who will one day be able to free themselves. So the notion of freedom is super central from herd-like reliance on objectivity and universality. I also really like his concept of the eternal return, you know, this ultimate embrace of responsibility that comes from accepting the consequences, good or bad, of actions we could have today. I think in, in this concept, what's embedded is an urgent exhortation to calibrate our actions in such a way as to make their consequences bearable and livable with uh, in perpetuity. So that's why he, he, he comes up with that concept of eternal return, the fact that we would live our life again and again and again. And when you think you will live that life uh, for eternity, then you think, okay, do I really want uh, to take that action? Uh, did I really think about all the consequences of that action? And would I like to go through this again and again and again? Um, maybe one caveat is that Nietzsche is not as technological uh, as could be other philosophers such as Heidegger, uh, but still, I think in Nietzsche, there's really some long-term thinking uh, of what the future of humanity and human thought uh, should be. And then there are plenty of philosophers who, who go around the notion, and we can go to the to 
our ancient uh, wisdom masters uh, thinking about Confucius, uh, Macarels, and so on. So usually uh, the first way we enter the future in philosophy is uh, as thinking about time, of course, time. The future in connection to the past, studying the past if you would like to define the future from Confucius, or thinking of the future in connection to the present. And there, actually, we can actually already see that sense of agency we were mentioning in some of philosophers' uh, thoughts. Let me um, quote Voltaire. It is said that the present is pregnant with the future. Or Mahatma Gandhi, the future depends on what you do today. Then you can really place the future in a time chain, like past, uh, present, future. You have Blaise Pascal, for example, who, who play around that idea. And he wrote the pensée, like the thoughts. If we examine our thoughts, we shall find them always occupied with the past and the future. So that difficulty to see in the present because uh, we are pulled in both directions, past and future. Yankelevich, a French philosopher, investigated the future as part of the philosophy of time around the concept of attente, expectation, of death. Uh, but it was often more in a metaphysical and existential perspective than a collective perspective like Nietzsche is doing for the future of mankind, for example. And then there's a lot of thought around the future as a disturbance, as something toxic, actually, to be uh, that prevents us from thinking the present. Um, Marcus Aurelius uh, tried to, to warn us against this. Never let the future disturb you. You will meet it if you have to with the same weapons of reasons which today arm you against the present. So he thinks the future is nothing different than a present in the future. And he doesn't think the future as an element in itself. Um, and there's one from Albert Einstein I wanted to mention as well. I never think of the future. It comes soon enough. Of course, you have other uh, representation of the future uh, in leaders' uh, consideration and also to move to move the people. A lot of leaders uh, use the future. And, and it's not that much philosophical, but still, I, I wanted to just to, to give a few. Um, you have Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We cannot always build the future for our youth, but we can build our youth for the future. So it's more rhetorical, um, but still we can find some lines of philosophy behind. Or you have uh, John F. Kennedy, change is the law of life, and those who look only to the past or the present are certain to miss the future. And of course, uh, you might think at this point at uh, George Orwell, 1984, who controls the past, when the party slogan controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past. So these are more the traditional vision of the future. But then you have uh, thinkers who are really about building uh, foresight as a discipline itself. And we come back again to this notion that the future is not predictable. This is not what, what, what is interesting about the future. It's not about predicting it. It's about preparing for it. And that we can find um, 
in Bergson. Bergson actually has a very interesting approach, uh, Henry Bergson, it's a French philosopher, uh, to process ontology. So that's a concept he developed. He also developed uh, um, elan vital, which means an evolutionary process. So what he's saying is that we cannot predict the future because the future is unfolding itself in front of us. It's like a creative energy. And we can think about a creative and continuous um, uh, emergence of the future. So it's not written, it's happening in real time. And it seems maybe obvious to us, but actually it hasn't been so much considered as this in philosophy. Um, you can think of, of writers uh, such as Ray Bradbury, I was not predicting the future, I was trying to prevent it. And it's interesting to talk about future fiction here because uh, we have this cathartic uh, <laughs> effect once again, uh, which is about not predicting, but presenting some futures and having people react, have emotions toward this. And then also another uh, tendency in philosophy, I think, is the concept of homo deus, um, the fact that some thinkers were already visionary uh, as they were thinking about the future. I'm thinking about um, Sigmund Freud, uh, the, psychologist, uh, the, the founder of the psychoanalysis. Uh, future ages will produce further great advances in the realm of culture, probably inconceivable now, and will increase men's likeness to a god still more. Oh, there's one quote I, I really like from Albert Einstein. Um, it's really profound if you think about it. I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. So if you think of this one, I'm sure you think of a, a collapse scenario behind. And then once again, um, a lot of it will be wrong, but just enough of it will be right from Ray Bradbury. So real quick with Ray Bradbury. So these are sort of the, you're going through some of the foresight and visionary philosophy. And I wanted to throw in a few comments here. Ray Bradbury wrote dystopian scientific novels. And one of his most famous one uh, was called Fahrenheit 451, which is the temperature at which a book paper catches fire and burns. And uh, in that book, I remember there's a fireman who is disillusioned. And the fireman in those books, they're supposed to take all our, in his book, the fireman story, they, they gather up all the books from people and then they burn them, right? And they're destroying knowledge and censoring literature. Uh, and then, of course, the, the main character uh, breaks away from this sort of dystopian um, government or whatever is driving him and he quits his job and he's trying to secretly hide literary and cultural writing. So it's interesting that you were saying that Ray Bradbury was writing about the future to prevent it. I was not predicting the future. I was trying to prevent it. He saw that in the future, perhaps, um, the, uh, you know, he could see this scenario of kind of the library of Alexandria being burned once again. And interestingly enough, um, one of the first things the Nazis uh, did when they took over their, you know, what people forget is that the Nazis first took over Germany. They took over their own country through political means before they started to take over the rest of Europe. And uh, one of the things they did was they burned uh, cultural um, 
books uh, at, at universities. There was burnings at universities of lots of books. That was one of the first things they started doing before they even started terrorizing anyone um, physically. It was these book burnings. And I can't remember what they were called, but uh, you can look that up. So it's interesting. So some future foresight people are saying, look out the future. We have to, we, we need to be careful here. Um, since you quoted Freud, uh, I wanted to quote Jung, Carl Jung here. Uh, this is one thing he wrote in one of his many, many books. <laughs> He's got so many of them. I, I believe, let me see which one this was, uh, CW15. I don't even know which one that was. I think this might be a letter. Um, Man and Spirit, Art and Literature. Uh, I think it's from that one, volume 15. So Carl Jung says, it is my conviction that the investigation of the psyche is the future or is the science of the future. My, it is my conviction that the investigation of the psyche, meaning the soul or, or the mind, is the science of the future. Psychology is the youngest of the scientists and it is only at the beginning of its development. It is, however, the science we need most. Indeed, it is becoming ever more obvious that it is not famine, not earthquakes, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself who is man's greatest danger to man for the simple reason that there is no adequate protection against psychic ep epidemics, which are in infinitely more devastating than the worst of natural catastrophes. The supreme danger which threatens individuals as well as whole nations is psychic danger. It's Carl Jung from his uh, 15th volume CW and it's paragraph 339. Uh, so he's also sort of talking about a, uh, a fear uh, of the future and, and needing, needing a signal there is needing more uh, science of the psyche. Um, so anyway, any comments on that before we go on with the philosophy of the future? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two things you quoted are, are extremely meaningful. Um, so the first about uh, Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451. Uh, I think it's a really good example of how a collapse scenario can help us um, get emotions and want to react. Because I think it despite it's been written like a while ago, it's still very actual and, and very recent because today, where are most of the book, most of the knowledge, most of everything is online. But what happens if all the servers uh, are destroyed one day, if someone attacks the servers or whatever, where do we keep our archives? So it's a very actual question, actually, where are the archives of humanity? Um, so that's a way for us to, to think about how can we actually uh, gather and keep these archives. Uh, then the second thing you mentioned, so I'm not so familiar with, with Carl Jung, so I, I was really happy to, to hear about that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things around uh, the fact that man is the first danger to humanity. And once again, we can see in that, um, like, vision, he really is a vision and that. And we have also um, l'homme est un pour l'homme, I don't know how to say it in English, a man is a wolf for the man. I don't yeah. know. Uh, it's like man is first man's uh, enemy or danger. Um, and that's something that we should also uh, remind ourselves. Um, so by enlightening us, it's also a way to, to be able to, um, to care more about each other. And here we are exactly entering the field of ethics, which was actually uh, my last point on philosophy. Um, the future is an optimistic philosophy, I, I do believe. Um, I will just quote Marie Curie, and I like to quote women as well because I haven't quoted so many. Uh, she says, I am one of those who think, like Noble, that humanity will draw more good than evil from new discoveries. 
And we know she got two Nobel Prizes. So uh, she, she's one of those people who actually uh, did a lot of discovery uh, for the good of humanity. Of course, we know also that with radioactivity, uh, that brought also a lot of, of um, evil for humanity uh, with the bombs, with the explosions of nuclear plants and so on. Um, so attached to this discovery, what's important is how do we keep them in a framework, in, in an ethical frame? How do we make sure that we have a good use of our discovery? And that's also the question we are asking. It's not just about doing a discovery today, something that's promising. We have to think of all the consequences, good or bad, of how we will use uh, these discoveries. Um, there are today uh, all fields uh, of intergenerational justice. How do we build a justice uh, that includes future generations? You were talking about sustainability a little previously, and there are actually a lot of questions in philosophy about how do we make our future sustainable, our world sustainable. So there's a field of ethics of the future, um, and we have a, a lot of questioning in that field around how can we take future subjects, people who don't even exist yet, into account when we judge the rightness or the wrongness of our actions? And there's a quote um, from Lucas Miller. The special features of our relations to remote future people, especially the lack of particular knowledge, the impossibility of cooperation, and the permanent asymmetry of influence, do not stand in the way of attributing rights to them that grant corresponding duties owed by us. So that's a long one, but what it means, it's, it's not because we cannot have um, a justice similar to the one we have today, uh, where it's a present person toward another present person that are completely defined, that we cannot build um, a justice towards future generation. We just might need to tweak a little the definition, maybe there's no, um, I would say, there's no reciprocity from these future people, but it doesn't mean that we don't owe them something. So there's a whole field investigating that. And I think that's, that's probably one of, of the most interesting things that's happening today in philosophy uh, of ethics. Just wanted to mention this. Yes, I, I think that could spawn a whole discussion. I would definitely want to talk about why futurist thinking is needed right now. But before we jump into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ethics of a recent fight I heard about, uh, fight meaning a verbal altercation on the internet, was Elon Musk, who is running SpaceX, uh, said something like this. Uh, he's, he was talking about making, uh, the, making human life multiplanetary. He said, you want to wake up in the morning and think the future is going to be great. And that's what being a space-faring civilization is all about. It's all about believing in the future and thinking that the future will be better than the past. And I can't think of anything more exciting than going out there and being among the stars. And that's Elon Musk's SpaceX creator. Now, that comment had a lot of blowback uh, in the internet forums where people were saying, uh, well, I think, you know, that's a great idea, Elon, you know, we could eventually become multiplanetary. That'd be great. But actually, what if we worked on making our current planet more sustainable and livable for all people before we invest all of these billions of dollars of, of leaving the earth? And uh, I thought that was an interesting kind of, that was part of the argument against it. So there's kind of a an ethical um sort of disagreement over what what is progress and what is not progress. And that was one that I saw recently. Yeah, that, that's 
the ethical dilemma around this is uh, really uh, interesting. But uh, once again, why should it be one or the other? Like, I'm really among the believer that we can try different things at the same time, especially because there might be different scenarios where it doesn't end up so well on Earth. So it's interesting that we have some people here that actually think about alternative scenario. And, and I like the fact that he thinks like 50 years ahead and not so many people are able to do that mental exercise. And we need people to have different time scale uh, to build that type of uh, approach. And what I find even more interesting is I think it's a question that we don't have today, but in maybe 100 or 200 years, people will not think just as earthlings, but really as humans on different planets. And, and will there be a different justice on each of these planets? Will there be a different race of human people uh, on, on these different planets? How different or how same will we be? And what we are thinking today at the scale of different uh, continents, different countries, we will see at the scale of different planets. So just thinking about this possibility as questions and put into perspectives where we can actually change things on Earth and maybe create also more solidarity among Earthlings thinking about there could be some living on other planets. Yes, and I think that's a, that's a great point. We don't have to do one or the other. I think that... Anything you put out on the internet, if you're famous, is going to get some sort of reaction to the negative. But um, it, interestingly enough, I want to ask about why futurist thinking is needed now more than ever. But right before I do that, I want to plug uh, an author who I really like, a female author named Ursula K. Le Guin. And uh, you, uh, her last name is L-E and then space G-U-I-N. Ursula K. Le Guin, who wrote a bunch of book series, a lot of them are about humans and human-like people living on different planets, except that she gets into the ethics of and the morality and the value structures of each society and why they're at war or why they're at peace and what is going on interplanetary and uh, also within the planets themselves. So I actually find if people are looking into some of that, it's I, I think it's more fantasy than than actual reality, but the the dilemmas they're facing are much more stretched into the future, I think, than our current dilemmas because they're talking about different um, types of environments. So anyway, that's something interesting we could talk about. But I definitely want to ask you about uh, is why is futurist thinking needed now more than ever in our current world? Yeah, very good question. And I think futurists have been very active this past year. Um, with the current sanitary situation, the succession of lockdowns and reopenings, people tend to feel stuck in the moment. Uh, millions of students have lost a year of study. Many business owners have lost their business. Employees lost their job. Many people lost their homes or had a health condition or faced financial pressure. On top of that, um, you had mental health issues, some have lost loved ones in terrible conditions. Many young girls gave up education to contribute to family life or business. And uh, that's the number that Save the Children published. Half a million underage girls were forced into marriage. Um, our country is experiencing waves of violence now, the US, I mean. So I have to admit, it is hard. It is hard to think positively in such a context. But that's probably why it's more useful than ever to extend our perspective, to try to zoom out, to activate our capacity to imagine alternative scenarios, better futures, to train ourselves to change 
point of view and use our empathy skills. All, all these skills we actually uh, use uh, in future thinking. I also believe that in periods of collective or social trauma, we are activated, we are triggered, uh, especially for the people who already experienced trauma before, be it personal or collective, because it reactivates our uh, fight or flight responses, um, primal reactions such as fear or feeling in constant alert. And we are in such a state, it is extremely hard uh, to get out of it, to get a sense of peace and to have a clear panorama of what is going on, to have a clear separation between the facts and the emotions. And in addition to that, we are constantly victims of cognitive biases. So I can name just a few, but think of recency bias. We tend to see things that are repetitive because they happened more recently. You have confirmation bias or halo effects. When we see a positive trait in someone, we tend to extend it to all their characteristics. Um, there's another one, anchoring, meaning we rely heavily on the first pieces of information we get. You know this expression, you only have seven seconds to make a strong first impression. So we do a lot of stereotyping. There's also bystander effect, um, like we are paralyzed to, to actually act when violence is happening next to us. There's authority bias. We tend to give much more credit to people in authority um, than to people with maybe uh, more reasonable thoughts. There's placebo effect. There's negativity bias. We give more weight to things that are negative, about 10 times more actually, um, so that it affects our psychological state and we need 10 positive events to balance one negative. So what I mean is we see the world through distortion lenses all the time. Uh, and most of these bias, we are unconscious to the, to, the, to the point that we actually believe that other people are more biased than us. So that's another bias. <laughs> uh, so we think, we act rationally, but many of our behaviors are the results of beliefs instead of facts. And with everything that happens, the chaos of these past years, most of this uh, bias uh, actually changes, changed the way uh, we react. Uh, they were increased. Uh, they also created a bipolarization towards people, more violence, uh, especially now that things are reopening, people are trying to, to, to meet each other again, but they had very different experiences of the past. So our mind tricks us with strategy to simplify our decision-making. And sometimes we have to reinduce criticism towards our own thinking. And that's where I connect it with future thinking, because future thinking is one of these tools uh, that includes critical thinking. As we mentioned, it helps us stretch our mind in different direction. It helps us change our short-sightedness by extending our horizon. It helps us be more aware of the facts, not just the emotions, especially we are mentioning the signals. Um, so these are facts we can be more aware of. It also helps us fight against our inner bias by changing perspective. And finally, to embrace others' point of view by developing uh, hard empathy. So I really think in that context, um, we need that type of, of future thinking. And we also need a historical perspective, as you were just saying a little earlier. Um, it's about looking at the past and looking at the future and trying to build continuity into what we want to build. Remember the facts, 
point out where we went wrong in history and avoid going that same way again. Identify the patterns in the past, the signals in the present, and try to inflect the future. And this works on the individual scale, but also uh, at the collective level for all of us at the society. I really like that um, how you're bringing together how futurist thinking and exercises can actually help us, especially in a time of stress, a collective stress. And it, it actually made me think, uh, I almost want to call futurist thinking intentional thinking. You're trying to gather all these different elements of the way we think, looking at our cognitive biases, trying to remove the distortion lenses, and then examining things from multiple angles. And the interesting part about the future is thinking, besides the hope and let's hopefully do this better, I don't see much of an agenda uh, on the future is thinking in terms of, so sometimes a, 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 an industry or a healthcare company or uh, you know, they, uh, they will do a quote unquote study that they use a scientific method on. But when you use the scientific method and you have already sort of foregone conclusions or an agenda to prove something a certain way or the other, that is a drift from protocol and ethics. And I love the futurist thinking, uh, you know, we love to be wrong. So it actually reminded me of the title of the show, intentional clinician taking deliberate actions um, you know, to make sure that you be you you can continue to be an effective clinician by avoiding the pitfalls of what we've seen in the past with other clinicians, and also trying to put structure in our lives to to follow a uh, uh, a path of growth um, as a clinician. Uh, but I but I was thinking about the future is thinking about you know working on ex changing your short sightedness, becoming more aware of the signals, fighting your inner bias, and then of course this is a a really uh, important time in history that we have to embrace empathy. Um, people report that sometimes when they are on the computer so much they don't feel warm and connected to others, and this is of course anecdotal. I'm not really quoting any sort of scientific study, but. Um, being able to understand that people with different viewpoints are not your enemy, right? Unless they're trying to kill you, they're not your enemy. Um, they are just a person with a different viewpoint. And how do we find the common threads in our viewpoints, even if our viewpoints are maybe quite extremely different? Um, and so, yeah, if you want to keep going, give us some examples or talk about some things you know about. Yeah, I can give you some examples of how we apply it in, uh, in industry, for example. Like in the corporate world, uh, we use uh, futuristic think thinking for launching new projects, scanning the environment, you know, like keeping an, a competitive advantage, uh, developing uh, new new products through R&D, but also reimagining the workplace. There's a lot uh, in terms of future of work and HR management, a lot also in terms of learning, lifelong learning. Uh, startups rely a lot on futurist thinking, like if you want to be innovative, to build new products, but also new business models, or being more reactive uh, in situation of adversity, uh, we, you, we need to induce uh, more futurist thinking. Investors. If they want to identify cutting-edge technologies, products, or practices, uh, if they want to invest in visionary entrepreneurs, they, they will use it as well. So I, I work uh, with that type of players, for example, as customers. Then there are some huge players. Uh, you mentioned uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX. We can think also uh, of Google with the Moonshot Factory, uh, the way they, they redesign their product and their workplace. Um, 
future thinking, being visionaries at the core of the company identity. Uh, Amazon, in terms of business model, but also the way they work uh, with their investors, uh, I think for 10 years, uh, they were not smoking any profit, and they had to tell their investors, like, we don't uh, give dividends, but we really believe in the fact that the company will grow in valuation, and in the end, you will, you will, you will earn something. But uh, it takes... it. Like it, it takes something to to tell that uh, to your investors. Usually, uh, it's not what they want to hear. So Amazon was really good also at changing that model of investing, at changing the workplace as well. Of course, you think of Apple product design. You like Steve Jobs was uh, is. If you ask people, I'm sure that who they would name as as the most visionary person. Uh, because he invented product even before people knew uh, they wanted. And of course, airlines have been also um, very big player uh, player during the pandemic in terms of thinking about what the future of travel will be. So the advantage is there was less business, so they had more time maybe to reinvent things like doing the right investment to rearrange um, the airlines experience, the aircraft, etc., cetera, uh, towards a new experience of travel. But then at if we go out of the business uh, sphere, we can think also of future thinking as a big part of how we can build a social system, how we can help institutions move forward, be it state or local governments. Um, if we think uh, of the pandemic, uh, the education systems have been totally challenged. And I was particularly lucky to be involved in this conversation because I've been working uh, closely with school reopening in California during the, the pandemic. Hospitals also had to fully redesign their process to be able uh, to admit uh, more patients during the crisis. So at every level, you, you need um, some people in your teams to be able to not just think about uh, dealing with the emergency, but also building uh, future-proofed processes. Uh, and then personally, I'm deeply involved in, in other topics such as the future of aging or what I call well-aging. How can we build a society in which aging is not a shame, but really an opportunity? Um, we can think about intergenerational uh, villages, um, but I think we, we could use all other podcasts just thinking about it. <laughs> yes, I believe that would be a whole podcast that we sh I believe we should do in the future. And then it sounds like there's more examples you even had. You were telling me about uh, understanding the big picture um, and the tide beneath the waves and kind of predictions. These are the, the principles. Maybe if I can sum them up, these are a few principles of future thinking. Usually I, I, I do a little class on introduction to future thinking. And I think there are a few concepts uh, for the ones who are interested. We could talk longer about this, but let me just sum them up. Yeah. So understanding the big picture, the tide underneath the waves. Uh, that's what we try to achieve as futurists. While predictions focus on one particular event or indicator, future thinking really focuses on comprehending big, complex transformation. Agency, once again, we talked about agency. Um, predictions, uh, when they are too static, they make us lose control. 
yet we have a sense of agency to create our own future. We can start by creating a map to the future, that's another tool we use, and looking for the big areas of opportunity. Another concept which is actually um, quite uh, actual, inoculation principle. Uh, we talk about inoculation in the sense of be ready, be prepared. If you consider a whole range of possibilities uh, for plausible future, then you can inoculate yourself from these futures. If one scenario happens, comes true, then you will be prepared for that future. So we talk about inoculation principle. Then we really think about foresight, insight, and action as a process, foresight to insight to action. And in terms of horizon, uh, we usually consider um, five to 10 years horizon. We think it's a good horizon to think about the future because first it's going out of your comfort zone, but it's not going too far so that um, it has no connection to the present. It's usually a good horizon to, to provoke action. And it means if you want to create a future in five to 10 years, the action may be needed today or in the next coming six months. And then what I personally love in future thinking is it's a multidisciplinary uh, field. Uh, it builds up on multiple resources and disciplines such as anthropology, sociology, psychology, as we talked about today, philosophy, uh, but also business strategy, market study. There's some design thinking involved, uh, sometimes design fiction, fiction, future fiction, the use of storytelling. Also some forecasting tools, sometimes it's really about also connecting with rational um, and forecasting uh, methods. And it's also about history, as we are saying, looking back to look uh, forward. And then there's also a lot of education involved with the field. So th th I think that's why it's an amazing uh, practice uh, for people who have kind of both a right and left uh, brain. So the seven key strengths of futurists we used to, to tell are creativity and imagination, mental flexibility, foresight, that ability to project ourselves in the future, practical skepticism, like asking concrete questions on how to get there. Empathy, we've been talking a lot about it, and I think it's really central, changing perspective and developing hard empathy. Strategy, like now, what do we do? How do we go there? And finally, my favorite, hope. I love that summary that you were giving us about the main principles of futurist thinking and how it differs from just forecasting. And I do think that the thing that really makes me excited about one of the points about futurist thinking and the futurism schools and the futurist schools that are, uh, are coming around the world or coming up around the world are, is that it's multidisciplinary. And I do believe that if humans are going to have a growth scenario in different ways, and I don't mean with money, but with, you know, the way we live and, and, the, and how things could be uh, and, and improving our lives, we have to be multidisciplinary. And um, for instance, in the field of medicine, uh, we find that multidisciplinary teams or integrative teams often have great results with patients. Whereas if you just keep going from doctor to doctor and referral to referral and the doctors aren't communicating, um, we aren't, 
you know, this is of course patients' experience. They they feel that they're going from silo to silo and getting different perspectives versus coming together as a team that's an integrative team. So, I am excited about the role of psychology and how psychology, because of course that's my my uh, field of choice here, could start integrating with these different fields and, uh, along with the futurists. So yes, I'm excited about that. Yeah, and you were talking about the concept of intentional. And I think that's really where, where it correlates. And that's probably how we started having the conversation at first. The fact that you were not just um, contained in your field, you were also interested in connecting mental health to psychology uh, in a larger sense, to philosophy, to other disciplines. Uh, I think that, that's also, that really shows what it means to be an intentional clinician. Yes, that's exactly what I've been trying to do was, um, well, I, I was quoting James Hillman because uh, James Hillman always said, if for psychology to grow and continue to be relevant in the world, it's got to come away from just the, the treatment room. You've got to do more than just the treatment room. You've got to start applying it to the community and what he used to call the polis, which is the, the community or in Greek, I believe that's where we got the word politics from, right? But James Hillman he he was a visionary in psychology and he he had to, he said we have to continue to revision psychology and not just think it's about symptom relief it's got to go beyond that it's got to go to complete transformation and then what happens once people get complete transformation is we want them out there in the world making changes in their in their fields of um, choice and uh, making innovations instead of continuing to do things the same old way um, and, and so I, uh, yes. And so as an intentional clinician, that's why my, <laughs> the interviews I do on here are from people from just vast different varieties of disciplines, but also a lot of just different ways of doing psychology and counseling, um, itself. So, uh, thank you for that. And yeah, of course, as we know, uh, the national violence prevention hotline is in my little tagline at the bottom of each podcast is something I've been working on. And that's, uh, definitely, a, a cross-disciplinary exercise to get that launched uh, as well. So now you did talk about brain structure, and I think we have a little bit of time left here to talk a little bit about um, brain structure and how there is a natural limitation in thinking about the future and how is that linked to our brain structure. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the answer lies in the fact that we consider our future self as a string. FMRI studies actually suggest that when you imagine your future self, your brain does something very weird. It stops acting as if you're thinking about yourself. Instead, it starts acting as if you're thinking about a completely different person. So usually what happens when you think about yourself, it's the medial prefrontal cortex that powers up. And it powers down when you think about other people. And what happens when you think about your future self? Well, the further we push in time and the less activation our medial prefrontal cortex shows. So exactly as if we were thinking about a stranger. And of course, we prefer to nurture our ego, our current self, than care for a stranger. And that's notably why people have a hard time resisting addiction. It seems easier to please our current thirsty and usually healthy self then care for a future and potentially sick self. We can also consider the futurist mindset in relationship to near-death experience. 
the experience of dying happens uh, to be a natural way to expand our time horizon. The older we get, the less we, we are actually to think about the far future. We would think there's a correlation, but no, the older we get, the less we think about the future. Probably because we don't expect to survive that long, but also because brain regions associated with mental simulations of the future do degenerate. And contrary to common belief, having children or grandchildren doesn't induce more future thinking. But there's one thing we've noticed that really does change and sometimes make a switch uh, in our brain to more future thinking. It's what we call a brush with mortality, a near-death experience, such as a potential terminal medical diagnosis, um, a traumatic events. Uh, and what happens um, in the psychological literature, we, we uh, collect, correlate that with a renewed effort to lead a more meaningful life and to leave a positive legacy behind. And that's after such events that we try to engage in building something for the future. So once again, it's the hope to contribute to a better world or better future that help us engage in thinking about the future. And that's why I like it again, because we see once again through this example how futurism is an optimistic discipline. Well, I like that a lot. I think there's a lot of, I mean, right there, you just told us about the science of the brain, which I know our listeners are going to love, but then tying it again into the optimistic discipline of futurism. And you tied it to a few existential um, parts of psychology. And I know um, I was going to touch on some of that towards the end here as we're wrapping up. Um, you have some some futurist mental exercises that everyone can use to stretch their time horizon. But actually first, before you went there, I kind of wanted to just uh, comment on just some ideas about uh, future thinking as a therapeutic tool. Now, uh, we were, I was trying to compare different things that I had heard you talking about with uh, some ideas from psychology. And I know this has not been fully researched. So there's just I'm going to just go off of some of the things you talked about and maybe you can comment on, on them as we go. And then uh, we'll talk about some of these exercises people can do at home if they want to try out futurist thinking. So the one thing that you just triggered was a, 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 a near-death experience. So now that can cause, of course, post-traumatic stress disorder in some people or anxiety, but in some ways uh, it can also be used as an opportunity uh, maybe if the, we can get past the symptoms. Um, and in fact, in existential therapy, thinking about your death or dealing with death anxiety or the grief will actually, if you think about your life as finite, help you make better decisions. So thinking about your death can actually reverse engineer how you live your life now. Um, that's already in the, uh, the literature. Uh, we were talking earlier about your future, your future self in five years and your future self or your past self five years before. And, and uh, now, of course, we weren't talking about idealism. It was more in, in the futurism. It's kind of like evaluating and analyzing things and then kind of figuring out what you want to do. But in uh, ego state therapy, which is a type of advanced trauma-informed counseling, uh, there's an exercise where you can get into a meditative state and you can imagine yourself from the future and and imagining the self and what they say, uh, they the future self could talk to you and give you advice. And I've had people do this exercise, and it's interesting because they the the advice that is given through this exercise of metaphor, not from the therapist, is from their imagination. 
uh, often lines up with the wisdom they need and lines up with their values and beliefs. Um, and that's sort of reminded me of some futurist thinking there. Um, reverse engineering or analysis reminded me of a, a few of the concepts you were talking about to be able to uh, basically see what happened as a result of your behavior. Let's go backwards and, and see how that happened and how we can help not have that happen again in the future, right? Um, another one is called uh, playing it forward. And this is a cognitive skill for usually for substance use or another behavior, which is that once you start using a substance that you have an addiction to or a, 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 a predilection for overusing, you try to imagine not only overusing the substance, but imagining your entire day and night um, for the next 24 hours and what happens or what has happened in the past uh, into your future. And often this can help people reevaluate uh, what they're choosing to do. Um, there's another skill called visualization and therapy. A lot of people use it in hypnosis where you try to, uh, you try to visualize or evoke a negative of a problem behavior, such as smoking a cigarette. So you might start imagining how your mouth would taste or how, how your skin will look after you smoke. Uh, and that might help you make a better decision in the present. Of course, goal setting, um, realistic goal setting and solution focused therapy reminds me of futurist thinking because you're thinking of different scenarios in the future. The futurists do this to, to think about what could be done to make things better. And so in very way, a very easy way, we can see the parallel in psychology and counseling that goal setting and solution focused therapy in a productive and measured way can be excellent for people's mental health to be able to slowly put together steps of how to go about finding their goal and then with multiple goals or scenarios in mind, change it if needed. Um, so uh, definitely um, I think there's a lot of ways that futures thinking can be used as therapeutic tools in psychology, but also maybe it's already a little bit in there sometimes. Um, and so I do think that, again, I do think the leaders in psychology and self-help and education really need to collaborate with other industries, um, both uh, private and, and the government, but in more of a utilitarian stance. I know that a lot of um, food companies and different companies trying to sell things will, will collaborate with psychologists about the most <laughs> addictive or persuasive way of advertising a product. Um, but uh, And that's fine, and people do that all the time. A lot of people with psych degrees in the advertising world, but I would love to see that used for the best, uh, uh, for all as many people as possible for benefits. Um, and I do think that um, in, in the same way that therapy is evolving and counseling and psychology is evolving through tests and through uh, trials in the field, but also anecdotally, I do believe that um, psychology will continue to, to evolve. And I believe that um, there is some need for futurist thinking in psychology, such as what will therapies look like in the future? Um, I've heard of people talking about immersive therapies. And um, instead of why are we doing a 55-minute encounter, why don't we do an hour and a half? Well, insurance won't pay for an hour and a half. But an hour and a half might be more effective if you're doing EMDR or trauma-based therapy. Or what about getting people into two-week intensives? Um, that aren't just in a hospital, but are out in nature and are really working on long-term rehabilitation. 
And the limits I hear often are money and logistics and these sort of things. But I do think that the futurist thinking could help psychology evolve into a even more holistic um, and helpful brand of uh, science. So uh, anyway, if you have any comments on that, Sylvia, feel free. Uh, otherwise, I would love to, uh, as we wrap, give our listeners some ideas about mental exercises that they could do uh, to maybe start thinking like a futurist. Thank you, Paul, for, for launching all these ideas. And I think that that's what I really appreciate since the start of our conversation, not just in the podcast, but before. The fact that um, you are able to, to draw these parallels between future thinking and therapeutic tools. And I'm sure you will probably uh, create a new uh, therapy based on future thinking one day. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and in terms of uh, mental exercise, and I like to call them uh, fitness, uh, mental fitness exercise, you can practice them um, every day and individually as, a, as part of a group uh, to try to stretch uh, your time horizon, stretch your, your mind and build your futurist mindset. Uh, the first one we usually mention, we call it predicting the past. So this is working about your counterfactual memory. You think about a decision you made in the past and you wonder what if I had made a different decision uh, would the past and present have been different as a, as a result. So you, you probably do it or at least part of it as your usual functioning. What's interesting here, it's not just about um, changing the decision you would have made, but really trying to recreate all the past from that day to today. So you really connect two areas of your brain. You can do the opposite exercise, remembering the future or the counterfactual prospection. Here, what we do is we think about something that could possibly happen in the future even though it has never happened before. So it's not just about making plan of what you're going to do this weekend because you do that most of the time. It's really thinking about something different, uh, something new, something you have never done, like a new experience. And then you try to imagine it as vividly as you can. And when I mean vividly, it's trying to, to imagine it through all your senses. So you also connect different parts of your brain. Um, how would it feel like? How would it smell? How would it uh, sound, etc.? You can use hard empathy. That's the third one. And here we are talking about counterfactual perspective. You try to figure out how you would personally would feel and do if you were in someone else's shoes. I'm sure some of you do it, but I'm sure also that we tend to do it less and less um, as we grow up and, and sometimes also, as we were saying before, when we are in a difficult environment, when we are threatened, we tend to focus on, on survival, on saving our ego, and we tend to not have uh, the capacity to, to work on that head, hard empathy. So empathy is a really, really useful tool. Um, as I was saying, like try to use the five senses. Um, this can really strengthen neurological pathways uh, by using all the five senses. Visualization, you were talking about visualization, Paul, for example. Uh, sensations, we do that also a lot uh, in meditation. Try to really be present in the moment through all your five senses. Well, in future thinking, we also do uh, use that type of tools when thinking about the future. Uh, then 
think in person, uh, sorry, think in first person about the future, not just in facts. Don't just think, okay, let's imagine a society in which uh, there are these rules and that type of behaviors and so on. Really think about what would happen if you wake up in that future. What would be the first thing you do in the morning? Uh, would you take a shower? Are, are showers still there? Uh, do you still have breakfast? How do you eat? How do you um, transport yourself from one place to the other? Uh, do you meet people in person? And so on. try to really think what you would do that you do today and that you would do differently in that future. So this in-person um, thing is exactly what will help you connect your future self this stranger future yourself to your current self and try to make bridges in your mind between uh, these two persons. Um, another exercise I find actually uh, quite fun to do, especially with a small group of people, it's called five, uh, find 100 ways anything could be different in the future. That really helps you and stick your mind. Um, I like to do that, for example, with rites of passage. Um, in anthropology, you, you can think about uh, any possible rite of passage, like birthday, growing up, um, maybe um, welcoming a new baby in the world, uh, a wedding, or, or also dying. So think of these examples and try to think about what we think is a part of it and will never change and try now to change the variable. Let's take a birthday, for example. Uh, why do we give presents, gifts, for birthday, is it something that is part of it? What if there's no gift during birthday? Uh, what if we don't celebrate in person? What if it's one week instead of one day? Uh, what if it's one year of our own life instead of every year? Uh, what if it's uh, whatever? You can change any variable and doing it with a small group is actually a really good exercise because you can build on top of each other. We talk about the four alternative future, growth, collapse, constrain, and transform. Uh, once again, to help you compartmentalize uh, what is good or what is uh, positive in your life and what is maybe uh, more of a collapsing element, you can kind of, of try to, to really feel um, these quadrants uh, with elements from your life. And I'm sure that can help you really uh, try to see the different uh, element and not just the negative. I, I know you mentioned it earlier, Paul, it's, it's difficult when you're in such situations to see the positive. Uh, that's something most of us have experienced at some point. Um, uh, here, I would make a difference between thinking it and feeling it. I think even when we, we are in depression mood, uh, in depression mode, we might see and feel more of the negative. By working on it, we can see some positive, but it, it's hard to feel it as positive. Some people might tell you, well, why are you seeing everything negative? Think of that and that, and they will tell you, yeah, 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 but they don't feel like it's positive. So it's also interesting to, to once again, connect with the senses. Why does it feel like it's not positive? And try to go always one, one step further. Why does it feel? Uh, that's negative to you and so And finally, another one, not always so easy to do, but use the experiential ladder um, to design immersive full body experiences. That's something we, we really try to do, like be confronted 
to the future. And we, we work a lot uh, with artifacts from the future, imagining what would be a future product. Then you put it in a current environment for people to meet in their everyday life, like, um, I don't know, uh, um, processed food from the future, and you put it at a breakfast table, and you see how people react to it. And that really helps also uh, people connect the present moment with the future experience. So these are also a way to activate the both zones, both areas of your brain and to connect uh, the present and the future self. Well, wonderful, Sylvia. I feel that you've educated us so much today on futurism and the applications. And uh, of course, in psychology and philosophy being my favorite, uh, I'm very, very grateful that you were able to show us uh, some of the some of the parallels and, and bring us into futurist thinking there. But I'm actually getting more and more excited about futurism as a field itself. And I know that you're working on a lot of projects such as uh, the, the well aging uh, project, the remote work, uh, mental health issues. Uh, mental health at home, the pandemic project, which will probably continue to be some sort of project as we uh, continue to go on in the world right now as with a post starting to hopefully soon to be a post pandemic world uh, school reopening. Uh, I know you're also involved in some other projects. Do you want to tell us about those? Oh, sure. Uh, thank you for mentioning all this already. Uh, I'm also part of a Sustainable Ocean Alliance, mentoring startups in that field. And, and that's quite exciting, like and plastic, on plasticking uh, the oceans and the earth, I think, is, is really, really a strong mission. Uh, and then on top of that, um, one tool I didn't mention much, but I really like to use a lot is future fiction. I write a lot of future fiction. I think fiction is a very powerful tool to evoke the future and bring people to face their emotions and start a pledge to build a better future. Um, I've published one book. I am currently working with speculative optimism and as you were saying, saying a little earlier, I'm also involved uh, in a sense-making community trying to make sense of the world in the current situation. It's called Grace One Guild. It's once again multidisciplinary. Uh, we have people from all over the world, uh, so many different fields, different age groups, um, different countries. So, so it's a really collective way to think about the pandemic. And we now count around like 1,000 uh, members, and I'm a board member with them. Wonderful. And I'm excited to let everyone get involved by following Silicon Humanism, which those uh, links will be in the show notes, which is your blog and your LinkedIn, YouTube, and all of that there. Uh, I know that you are working on uh, advancing futurism uh, and futures thinking and strategic uh, foresight as part of your research organization. So I'm excited for people to get involved. If they want to get involved with you after this, they can get involved in any, maybe through the Gray Squan Guild or through Silicon Humanism and just sort of see what the, what collaborations can take place. Thank you so much. Well, this has been really a pleasure like to, to work on this uh, with you, Paul, before and during this podcast uh, to give a voice to future thinking. I think it's amazing and, and I feel really energized about uh, the way we can help also in the mental health area. So thank you for this. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Uh, absolutely my pleasure. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again on the Intentional Clinician Podcast. 
And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with your host, Paul Krause, licensed professional counselor. I am so thankful for Sylvia as she lent her time to teach us all about futurism. I know she has quite a few projects going on as you gathered. And if you want to connect with her and continue learning about her work, I would encourage you to go over to the Silicon Humanism blog and subscribe there or go to her LinkedIn or her YouTube where she posts content frequently about some of her projects that she's able to um, talk publicly about. I know she does a lot of private uh, work for private industry as well, and I know that she can't always post about that, but she has a lot of really cool public-facing things. And uh, I know that her and I have talked about doing a second podcast on well-aging or futurism applied to the field of aging. So I think that's really interesting is that has a lot of intersection with psychology and um, a lot of applications. As many of you know, I've been working on a course for the parents of young adults. And as soon as that course is available, I will put the course link for the on-demand video course in the show notes of all the podcasts. Of course, our guest Sylvia Galusser's information is also in the show notes. If you are looking for an Emdria consultant, I am now an Emdria consultant in training and can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become an Emdria certified therapist. And I have started two Emdria consultation groups online. For details, check out counselingsupervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com or send me an email. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Kraus and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in their respective fields, this podcast should not be viewed as the definitive opinion or opinions on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment or business advice. If you are in a crisis, please call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741. The number again, 741741, and text it, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond to you. You can support your local bookstore by shopping online at www.bookshop.org. You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting local businesses near you. The Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is working to increase the availability of quality mental health services statewide, increasing education and promoting best practices and working to keep licensed professional counselors and other professionals accessible by the field. You can learn more about their mission in episode 32 and 33. If you're in Arizona, the Arizona Counseling Association also has a lot of great work going on and I encourage you to join. If you're in another state, please consider joining your local counseling organization. There are, believe it or not, forces in this world that don't want people to get counseling and would rather them use more expensive or less helpful interventions. I know it seems hard to believe, but if you have been in the field of lobbying or politics, you know what I'm talking about. Counselors need your help. Please join and at least give money to the dues so that we can 
do our best to educate the public about these interventions that are very safe and have low risk. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Intentional Clinician podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. I'd surely appreciate it or share it with somebody that you know. Thanks so much. And I'm wishing you all out there a safe and peaceful week.